Don't worry about a thing. Cause Atticus Health will make you feel alright. Don't worry about a thing. Cause Atticus Health will make you feel alright. If you got a tummy ache, or you don't feel right, or if you have a nasty rash, keeping you up at night. Don't worry, don't worry about a thing. Don't worry. Cause Atticus Health will make you feel alright. I'm Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. We are broadcasting to you live on Radio Karim from unceded Kulin Nation land. The ancient Karen Karim swampland where we are tonight has been continuously occupied and cultivated for more than 7,000 years. I am so grateful to be able to live, play and work in such a special place. My conversation partner on the telephone line tonight is James Wilson, a director of Lions and a practice leader in design and briefing for civic, cultural and education projects. Highly experienced in the development and delivery of complex multi-million dollar public precincts, his expertise lies in bringing together the collaborative nature of learning and research environments. James's extensive experience over the last 20 years has seen him become a national leader in innovative learning, cultural and library spaces. He is highly recognised for his formative design work in the vertical campus model. This evening's conversation will mostly focus on the multi-award winning Springvale Community Hub, a Lions project designed and delivered under James's leadership. It was completed in 2020 and collected a host of, of awards in 2021, including the William Wardle Award for Public Architecture and the Australian Institute of Architects Victorian Chapter. The stunning landscape architecture was designed by Rush Wright Associates. This building was completed before I joined Lions, and we haven't had the opportunity to work together on a project yet. So I'm very much looking forward to our conversation tonight, James. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Alana. Very, very happy to be here, and um, pity I can't be in the studio with you, but um, happy to be here. I'm on Wurundjeri Country in the north of the river here, um, but uh, happy to have a chat. Wonderful. And we're hearing you loud and clear in the studio, as I'm sure all our Fantastic. live listeners are. And if they have a question for you tonight, the number to text is 0493213831, or if you miss those numbers, it's just the contact list on the Instagram. You can reach us at Radio Architecture. So hopefully there'll um, be a few que questions coming in or maybe even thoughts about what how people like to use um, Springvale Community Hub. Well, the first question I like to ask everyone is what's your earliest memory of a building or place? Oh, that's a good question. Right. So I can tell you what it is and, and a little bit of context behind it too, which is um, 
So I'd say it's probably my local parish church, believe it or not. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a pretty memorable place when you're a small person in the world. So I was brought up in what, what could only be described as a very white cultural uh, mecca of Mentone. So it's, uh, it was completely um, a community of, you know, school community. It had no sort of cultural vibe like the project we're about to talk about. Um, very sort of 70s and 80s and white Australia sort of thinking in that suburb. And I'm not to say it wasn't a great place to grow up in. It, it was absolutely was. But um, so I had to spend most of my Sundays in this vast church. And I, I remember sitting here a lot of times going, this is uncomfortable. I don't like this place. What am I doing here every weekend? And I think about that a lot, actually, when I see that architecture now in a weird way, because I just think about buildings that people want to be in. And I'm not saying there's not room for, you know, um, architecture of the spirit and ecclesiastical architecture. But when we design buildings, public buildings, that's the first thing you think about is, well, what makes people want to be there and want to stay there and actually be uh, together again and, and, you know, have some sort of egalitarian feel to it. So that, that weirdly enough, is it's not a, it's not a stark tech building? building. What was the building like itself? That, oh, the, that the building was a, a brick suburban parish church uh, in Mentone and it was linked to my local school. Um, yeah, I guess when you ask the question, that's the first thing that came up because there's not really much architecture down that way back then, especially in the you know 70s and 80s. It's the local bowling rink and then, you know, 50,000 AV Jennings houses near the, near the beach. I mean, that that is the architectural landscape of where I grew up. Um, so, yeah, the local church was the most monumental, impactful architectural thing that was in my in my sphere. And the Mentone Hotel, but you were definitely too young. For and that the to Mentone be, Hotel, yeah, exactly. For, for that to be your first memory. So why yeah. architecture then? Um, well, I, I, I didn't come from a dynasty of architects or anything like that, if that's where you're going. Um, I actually didn't want to do architecture to start with. Um, I actually wanted to follow my older sister's footsteps and get, go into physiotherapy. I wanted to go into a medical field. Um, and as luck have it, has it, I wasn't smart enough. And I went into architecture instead as my second preference. And I had some interest in um, in design at school, but um, I went into it and and then within six months, I just, uh, I loved it because I was actually going into it at university thinking, oh, I'll transfer back to a medical medical uh, degree. And no, I just loved it. I, just, I spent six months or a year doing these, you know, kind of strange little exercises, creative ones you always do in first year that you feel like you're going back to primary school almost, how to, how to, how to draw properly and how to draw in pencil properly and pen properly. And, and uh, no, I just loved it. So I kind of just forgot about anything to do with the medical field, which is lucky because I'm actually not very good with um, blood and gore, as it turns out. So that's that's probably not a bad thing. And um, and went from there. So I, I strangely went to um, architecture school, University of Melbourne, really raw. There was definitely people I started school with who had been uh, in an architectural family or, you know, been sort of drawing and looking at architecture for a while. And uh, I felt very exposed, I've got to say. Um, so my keen interest in architecture and looking at it harder really started when I was in the age of 18, 19, not, not earlier than that. And then you were hooked. How did your career align start off? Um, actually, weirdly, a bit early. So um, I met Cameron Lyon. Um, who's who's uh, deceased now? Who's it was just a magnificent architect, and I, my my father actually, who was an engineer, was um, working for what was then called Major Projects Victoria, and um, 
and he was doing the county court, uh, which you might know that project up on um, up in the sort of west of the city, uh, which is a great project. And and at the time, that was actually being run partly by the government agency, building services agency, uh, which is a government agency. My father got me an internship just for a month or two months in there. I met Cameron Lyon and he took me under his wing and just got me to make models for him for a couple of years. And then uh, when Lyons was formed, he went over there and, and uh, I went overseas for a while and did travel as you do, sort of about six months sort of around the world and got my sort of feet as an architect and and came back and had a chat to Cameron. He goes, oh, I've just joined this new or newish firm, you know, with my brother and or brothers. Um, do you want to come and make models there? So I went and actually made models for a number of years as a student within the Lyons office. That's pretty inspiring from model maker to director. Yeah, oh, the models were fantastic. I mean, famously, I, I, I built this. They actually brought me into, um, you know, where the RMIT, well, for our listeners, there's a big RMIT building that Lyons built on Swanson Street. Quite a huge building, but back at 20 years ago, there was actually a small sports hall proposed on that site, which didn't go ahead. And so the firm asked me to build a model because the builders didn't believe it could be done, it couldn't be built because it was quite a complicated geometry. So I spent a couple of months building out know, balsa wood and steel and, you know, um, laser cut bits of uh, ply and, and made this massive model in the office and we were in quite a small office there. And so the time came to go show the builder and the client down at RMIT and, of course, it couldn't fit the lift. So we couldn't get it out of the office. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> which, which had occurred to no one before that point. Um, <laughs> so then we we obviously got them in and they had a look at it in the office. But um, And then sadly had to get chopped in half when we moved offices 10, 15 years ago and got destroyed. <laughs> oh, no. But it sounds like that model had a really good run. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I miss those days of, to be honest, like when you can immerse yourself in something, you know, whether it's like bit of art or drawing or, you know, even AutoCAD when you sort of were doing your technical drawings, but just doing a model for weeks on end. It's a pretty peaceful, nice thing to do. We have um, a, a few models around the office, don't we? When was the last time the practice officially made a model for the for a client, do you think? It's a good question. I think we have often retrospectively made models. You know, a lot of architects make models to develop ideas, which I think we've done digitally for a long time now. Um, so we do retrospective models, the building's finished, and then we've done a couple of models to, you know, sort of show, show the sort of form of it. But I, I think it'd be, you know, good, a good, good eight years or so before since we've done a done a proper model in our office. Very true. All right. Well, let's jump in to Springvale Community Hub. I've been discussing with the listeners and with guests over the last fourteen weeks. Wow. On, on this program that architecture is about ideas. It's about really big ideas and representing that in building and capturing it. What are some of the big ideas that went into Spring Valley Community Hub? Um, well, the first big idea really was, so I should, get, should say it was, a, it was a design competition, which, which does inform sometimes a different strategy for how you might uh, win a project from from a client group when you're only showing them something for 20 minutes. Um, and this project was put out as a national design competition. It, it had flavours of, you know, what Springvale was and a cultural community, but it had a really um, strange master plan you had to follow, which was which is, which is a bit plain. It, it looked like it should be a men's home where I grew up, you know, a bit, bit white and a bit, bit uh, vanilla and didn't feel like to us like it represented a really diverse community. Um, and so 
the big idea that came with Springvale was, as most people in Melbourne know, Springvale is a really culturally diverse community. But the reason it's so diverse is it actually had uh, a special hostel there called the Enterprise Hostel. And that's between the 70s and early 90s, like 30 or 40,000 people came through that hostel when they got immigrated. They arrive at the airport or, or to docks, get straight to this hostel in Springvale, and after a while get released uh, into the community with their papers and, and uh, some money. And But they'd settle in Springvale because it's the first place they were at. So it's got this amazing cultural history. So that was number one. It's like, how do you represent cultural diversity and, and give some sort of civic pride um, to the building? Uh, and that came through in a number of ways. I mean, I think number one, as you would have seen when you went there, is a very happy um, kind of flag, coloured flag uh, motif on the front of the building faced on the spring bar rope, which is really happy, very colourful, sort of represents again um, a lot of uh, diverse communities uh, in there. And I think that was one of the earliest ideas. And the second big idea we had was about uh, the master plan we got at the design competition actually uh, demolished or got rid of three beautiful river red gums. And we saw that immediately and said, why, why on earth would you chop those down? They're, they're immaculate. They've probably been there since people settled, or before people settled in Springvale. They're enormous too. They're amazing. They're amazing. And so we, we can't get rid of those. And and that's a, there was a nice idea too because it started to represent people who were here beforehand and things that have been here beforehand before the culture meets in Springvale. So going back to the Bunurong peoples, but also just the native flora and fauna that was here beforehand. So uh, the building, as you know, is a big block and we literally carved like this wavy form around the trees. And that, and that big idea is a really um, sublime, sublime one, I feel like you're in that moment of being carved out in the building around these trees and it, it celebrates the trees everywhere in the library. You look at the trees and, you know, you can enjoy them. Um, so hopefully they live for another 100 years because they're, that's what they're there for. Absolutely. And the glass facade that faces those trees, even despite having a frit on it, which is a little bit of texture for the listeners, it reflects those trees back. I went on to see it on a beautiful sunny day and could capture the reflection on that glass facade just dancing and playing it and yet passing through. So yeah, yeah. That is, that is beautiful. And that was, again, yeah, reflecting the trees is important. So for, for listeners who don't know what a frit is, it's like it's like your bus advertising that you get on a bus is where you can see the advertising from outside. It's a bit opaque, but when you're inside, you see straight through it. So when you're in the library, you see straight through it. It's fantastic. You see all the trees. But when you're outside, it actually clouds a bit of the views inside but allows these, you know, really nice, as you say, reflections uh, to the trees and and it's also, that's the north face of the building. So very purposefully, it's actually a veranda. So the glass facade is actually out from the real building facade. And, you know, we thought that was a great, another sort of Australiana thing to put in it was a veranda, a front veranda you could sit on, look out to the trees and across the fields and uh, also protect the building uh, from, you know, our hot northern sun. Yeah, absolutely. Just back to the flag facade, if I understood it correctly, that it's based on the demographic data percentage as to how big each colour of the flag is on that facade? As with all good things, they start empirical and, you know, they start database. So it absolutely was based on the representation of cultures within within um, Springvale. And that's how we started the competition idea. When we started meeting with the, the users and stakeholders, and I love doing that because it changes your view on things, the first thing that came back was, well, hang on. The, uh, the Vietnamese flag 
is on there. Which flag are you using? And of course, you know, it was based on the current Vietnamese flag, which is a communist flag, which is very offensive to a lot of Vietnamese in the community as well. And there's other references to flag, for instance, the Australian Indigenous uh, flag, which of course was copyrighted uh, at the time. It's not now. And so flags have a lot of issues with them, really. Like they've got representation, they have damaging men. Some people, they're very happy many to other people. I mean, some people in our community are offended by the Australian flag for lots of different reasons as well. So the literal translation of those wasn't to be you can read your flag. If you're from the Indian community, you can read the, you know, the red and, and the uh, sort of yellow and, and white. It's not wasn't meant to be that. But you can read it if you want to, and I think that's what's wonderful about it. It has a sort of a, a, a big zone of colour, which is a major representation to people from Indigenous and Australian communities, and the colours as it goes across the wavy facade, they get thinner and thinner, and they that means they get into the more minor communities around Springvale, but it gets harder to read. And I think that's sort of a nice thing because the community's change and flexed and I don't think anyone would look at it and go, that's my flag, but I think it has a nice representation that you can talk to people to and they get it straight away. Definitely um, it turns into this like pixelated, almost uh, out no signal s- s- television screen moment. But Yeah, and I, th- I think it's nice to have an idea I always believe anyway, it's nice to have an idea that isn't strange and people are architects. People get it. They go, oh, great, good idea, got that. Whereas I think a lot of architecture talk, you know, we're talking before the show, a lot of architecture speak isn't accessible to non-architects. Yeah, exactly right. I must say one of the flags that was instantly legible to me was the Aboriginal flag because the circle of the sun pops inside to the yellow sunroom. And when I walked into the interior of the building and I saw the circle and the yellowness of it, first I loved the colour and then I thought, hang on, where's that on the outside? Walked back around and realised that's the flag popping through. How brilliant and what a good way to get around copyright of a then unfreed flag that has since been freed. And like Very, very, very good pickup. The way way architecture can capture these... Um, historical and political and, and cultural moments that it's a snapshot. It's a representation of our values and ideas at that point, right? I think that's right. And I think, you know, architecture can have fun and 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 sort of, as you say, we're being a bit subversive on, on that one, you know, as, as again, for our listeners, you know, that part of the facade is, is red and black, but there's no yellow, so it can't be red as a flag. But there's a circular window, which the room inside, which is a community meeting room right in the corner, it's one of the best rooms in the whole place, is vivid yellow. So, yes, at night time, you can see inside, see the yellow, and subversively, it is suddenly the flag. And so, again, it's it's about it's about just having fun, being respectful culturally, which, you know, we talked about this with the local um, Bunurong Land Council as well, and, you know, making sure we're not going to kick up a fuss, but just kind of going, well... We want to use this idea and we think it's an important moment, but it won't be read by everyone and that's fine. It's totally fine. And sometimes you go in and you can just be like absolutely captivated by the colour. I wonder yeah. how, how did that go with the client group? Did you instantly have a buy-in? I think that was the absolute one of the winners of the, the project ideas from day one was this idea of representation and, and a civic happiness. Like I think they genuinely wanted that project that made 
made the community feel happy and, and you know it's a very happy precinct and I don't know if you felt that when you were there but every time I, I go there I, I just feel happy it's a really nice place to be around it's colourful it's vibrant it's diverse so that flag concept was really strongly held but it was much stronger in the beginning so in the beginning it runs down a facade and it does at the moment if you go there it runs across the paving around a basketball court and goes almost all the way to the footpath so it's, you walk across the flags as walk next to them up the building originally it was going across the basketball court and across the footpath and it, it covered everything but of course you know the sports people said we can't play basketball on that we can't see the lines you can't do that so of course it got taken off the basketball court but the, the effect wins. is still your sport wins yeah i mean functionality sometimes has to win uh, but it's pretty um it's still pretty powerful and still pretty bright uh, as it is and as i said i think that basketball court is one of the one of the best in Australia. It's like it's uh, floodlit next to this beautiful coloured facade, colours all around it, and it's it's really popular. It's fantastic. It's and, one of the best the, spaces in the whole precinct. And the garden has grown in so wonderfully around it, and you get this beautiful shade on the coloured trellis that, or the trellis over the bench seat that comes up, and to provide a bit of a bit of shade there. While we're discussing the facade, what about the one that faces the car park? Can you tell me about those reflectors? Yeah, so, I mean, early on we were thinking about, um, you know, context context mapping, I guess. And so, you know, the flag idea was a big civic one. That should face Springvale Road. That's obvious. You know, so you can see it as you're driving by. It's like a big, um, you know, box moment. The the rear facade, well, it's not the really rear facade. It's one of the front entries to it. Um, we had to put in a lot of car parks. It was just part of the brief. We couldn't do much about it. And early on the master plan, we decided, well, where the river red gums are to the north and to the uh, front of the building, we make absolutely no cars. It's going to be green, it's going to be community, it's going to be pedestrianised, because it wasn't originally. There's lots of little roads going through that whole area. So we got rid of all that, but you had to put the cars somewhere. There was 300 cars we had to put on site. So we put them out there and it, it ends up looking like a Bunnings car park in some ways. So we decided then, well, let's, let's just amp up the idea. Let's make that whole facade facing the car park a bit like a car park and, and put kind of freeway-like signage on it. Um, so as you enter the car park, you read the car park lines and then the car park lines literally go up the building, which is two storeys high, and it's black with white stripes and we put little reflectors in there. So when you drive your car in at night, they sort of bounce off bounce off the building and, and put a couple of big moments that are big sort of blue um, tollway signages uh, on there. And I guess it's really just like a... This is about being in the burbs, right? And I talk about, you know, my experience at Mentone. When you're in the burbs, these sort of weird moments make big impacts. You know, I remember when Bunnings got built in Mentone, it was like, wow, a big, big box statement that's, uh, you know, right near my house. So it's sort of the same. It's like big representational architecture, especially in the burbs, does mean something. You know, it's the, it's the suburban dream when you sort of go past, go past and drive past things at, at a pace you know, they've got an impact. So that's what it was about, really. It was about sort of being a bit subversive. A nod to that car culture. I didn't quite understand that facade at first, and then when I did my first lap around the building, I saw the reflectors and I thought, oh, my God, it's a car park. They've turned the and car you know, park you up know what, that, that was a clever addition. That was done by um, Sam, who was, was my design collaborator on that one, and that was his idea because we were sort of looking at it going, are people going to get it? Are people going to get it to car park? And he said, why don't we put reflectors on? I said, oh, you're dumb. Really? And it's a great idea because I think those sort of details lock people in. They go, oh, okay, I get it. 
that's what, that's what did it for me. It was so uh, for sure a win on on the reflectors. What about the interior? The other bit that had me wondering was the enormous timber balustrade. Yeah, I think that's a that's a bit of a, a lines detail. I've got to say that's that's pervaded a few projects, and I think that first came into a project I did um, when I was working under Carey Line, who's one of the, my co-directors now, and we were doing a building at RMIT called the SAB building back in 2010, and we were talking about tight public spaces and we're all talking about well do you put in seats not the seats sort of block off all the circulation you know do you put in benches what do you put in and we decided well why instead of having balustrades you know the handrails that go around every edge of uh spaces these days why don't we just make them big and fat so instead of making little handrails they're you know like 300 400 mil wide and they're big enough that you can actually rest your rest your bum on and you're sort of leaning against them, a bit like the trams have nowadays, the little cushion seats on the edges. I was just going to say, and who did it first, you or Metro Trams? Yeah, I'd like to say we did. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, yeah, probably Metro. But so it's, but it's a good space-saving idea. And and so that's uh, that's actually been through quite a few projects of ours. It's a bit of a detail we've used and, and it came to that project. It looks really beautiful. That also adds a, a natural texture, a natural tone, and amongst all the really intense colours. Yeah, it was a hard thing to build too. Like if anyone, if anyone's listening who does woodworking, you know, this is a three, four hundred million, you know, t- solid timber pipe that is cut on so many different angles to match the curves of the building. So it's, it's a pretty awesome joinery and woodworking feat. Fantastic. Well, this project has been called one of. Um, Lions most progressive buildings potentially. Do, what do you think about that? Do you agree? I, I hadn't heard that. I mean, it depends how you define progressive, and I don't want to delve into architecture talk, but um, I think, well, what's progressive architecture? I think it's progressive in a way that is um, very joyous as a civic building i think it i think a lot of civic buildings can be very serious so i think it's progressive in that way that it's quite different in the appeal i feel it, it represents the community on a lot of different aspects um, and the way it welcomes people in um progressive architecturally i mean i think it nods to quite a bit of um both melbourne architecture and, and also um of what a lot of what lines have, have tested it before. I mean, I think it's come together in, in such a way that it's clearly an outstanding project. Um, I don't know. I don't want to claim progressive. I don't, I don't quite. What do you think progressive would mean for this project? For this project, I think it's the plurality of it, like just how many different people and groups are welcomed in and feel comfortable in it. And it was really being used. We went to have a look um, on, on Father's Day, actually. My dad came with me. For a, oh, nice. for a little walk, that was our fun activity together, um, and it was busy as, and the, the the plurality that's afforded or captured in it is is that for me, and also the the variety of spaces. I think it makes it progressive because it gives all the different kinds of people the chance to just be themselves. So, like, yeah, in both across indoors and outdoors. And I think, uh, and let's talk about that for a second, I think that is a very powerful part of the project that isn't about facades necessarily, it's about um, urban and civic design. And we should nod to Rush Wright Associates, who are the landscape architects on this job, and they are absolutely a design partner on this project. And so the whole public realm around this building is huge, right? You, you walk around it, 
and it's got things from like a big, you know, winding uh, pathway that people, you know, kids can scoot along. Uh, it's got little exercise areas where adults can do their kind of outdoor gym. It's got a, an area where Tai Chi happens under a bandstand. So actually, I think the attractiveness for people around the area of all ages isn't because it's a library or it's a community hub or it's it's got some services to it. I think it's got so many functions outside the building as well as in. The people just love to come and, and hang and do different things at, at different ages. And I've got to say, the Springvale Library and the people who run it are very good at focusing. You know, they do tech classes for older people in the community to learn how to use computers, but they also welcome in the high school students after school to do certain things. They've got a children's part of the library, which obviously brings in younger kids. And we intentionally did design all those different areas of the building in quite different ways. I mean, you've probably been around the children's area, which has very, you know, fun kind of soft rocks that the kids can sit on around, you know, kind of a very intimate space. But then there's a youth lounge upstairs because, you know, the teenagers don't want to be associated with the children. So they've got their own area upstairs, which has a, a good view. It's a bit closed off from the rest of the library uh, and they can really kind of own that space up there. So it's about, it's about creating different spaces for different um, people, not just cultures, just different ages. And I think that was thought through quite hard. We did a lot of work on that. So I think if you're talking about progressives in highly used, I'm happy to take that mantle because I think it is unlike most other buildings in, in that way or projects in that it has a bit of something for everyone. I mean, the basketball court, as I said, I mean, that's that's just a classic great urban example about how, how to give uh, bored teenagers something to do after school. Right, great basketball court right there on Springwell Road, right next to the bus stop. You can get off, shoot some hoops, and it's a healthy activity. Absolutely. You know, then the, it sort of raises the question about how do you get a client that's so brave as well to support this project? And that's my, my, I guess my question is that to have great and progressive architecture, do you need a, a bold and brave client as well? Of course you do. You, you absolutely do. And not every client would be open to progressive architecture. You know, there's definitely clients you get who are, have, have architecture fixed in their brain. The people we work for, especially the, the CEO, John Benny, who is an amazing person within the council, he's retired now, but he, he uh, we did two projects with him, as, as you probably know. We did a Dandenong Civic Centre uh, and then we did this one. And he, he with all the councillors, he wasn't focused on architecture as a as it wants to look. He, he didn't dictate that, neither did the councillors. They cared about what their community wanted and how to make them feel welcome. So as long as we're always talking about those ideas in a believable way, that's that's how we uh, got away with it, isn't the right word. But, you know, we got, we got a lot of designing the ideas through because we centred it on people and it was going to bring the community in. And the reason that's important is interesting, interesting too. So the whole area now is called the City of Greater Dandenong. It used to be the City of Springvale, City of Dandenong. I think there was another City of Keysborough, maybe one of the other ones in there too. Uh, and they got amalgamated, you know, Kenneth amalgamated lots of councils. And so the, the old council chambers used to be on this site and it used to be the local community hub, but then it all got moved to Dandenong. And so Springvale was kind of left without its civic heart in a lot of ways. And so the generosity of the councillors in making sure it's going to be a great design and they did a design competition to get the, what they believe were the best architects and they went along with a lot of ideas in there because I think they were just 
honestly wanting to make the best building they could for the community. And they kept putting a bit more into it too. The budget was actually less when we won the project. Um, I don't think it doubled, but it got close to that uh, through more investment to do more landscape, to do more parks for kids, to do things that actually uh, got bang for their buck. It wasn't just spent on architecture. Um, they kept adding things that the community uh, were telling them they wanted. This is a testament really to getting the intention right at the start of a project. Uh, the attention or the, the tension? Intention. 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 Yeah. intention. Well, the intention yeah. as well is always a necessary ingredient, but the, the intention is really defining what it is you, you're setting out to do. And Correct. And I, I, I think um, you've all got to think about buildings as being there for 50 or 100 years, and, and a lot of people don't think like that. They want to build, you know, a lot of people for lots of reasons they'll build um, you know, something that will last 10 years. It might be, you know, because it's a commercial development or it might be because it's a house I don't want to live in for too long. But if you think about built, the built environment generally lasting for a long time, for instance, the pretty poorly insulated house that was built on when I grew up as a kid, the A.B. Jennings house, is still sitting there in Mentone today, 50 years later. And I'm not 50, but the building's about 50 years old. So these buildings last a long time, even though people don't think they will. So... The councils knew that, and I think that was their power in in believing things because they went, no, we've got to invest because this this is not going to um, go away. This is the building that's going to be there for the community for the next 50, 100 years. So let's go for it. You know, let's really um, look for things that are going to make sense for a long time to come. That's an excellent segue into sustainability. And And considering that longevity is really critical to good sustainability. And this project was a six-star, green-star, net carbon zero on operation. Is that, is that right? Yeah, it is. It is. So that, that's, again, something that was debated for a long time. That's not easy to do. So, again, for anyone who's not an architect, six-star, green-star is the highest rating you can achieve in environmental sustainability in Australia. It's equivalent to a global leading sustainability project. Um, so it's really hard to do, and they always up the benchmarks every year or two. Um, so this project, from early on, you know, we, we were pushing for sustainability outcome, but luckily the council really wanted to do it as well. Of course, they own assets for a long time, so they're interested in how it's going to operate over a long time. Um, so carbon neutral was always, almost the first conversation we had, and the building itself was designed a bit, it's a bit like a factory roofscape. It's got these kind of, you know, triangular roofs on it which let light in one side but the other side has solar panels completely on every surface it can be on so that was kind of like number one and then to get to six day you got a whole range of um, uh, sustainability objectives all around the building from you know good insulation to um, you know the systems and cooling and and how people actually use the building how close it is to transport there's a whole load of things but that was a really remarkable achievement for, for this project to get six star so we're pretty proud of that and it's such a good example that sustainability can be beautiful it can be colorful it can be brave yeah that's right that there's not an aesthetic to it that it's not just a bit of green bit of beige bit of natural materials and you get away with it being sustainable yeah i think that's right and so you know as you say it doesn't look like a sustainable building but it does as we talked about the glass fritted veil at the front from the north protects the building from the sun. Simple objective. Um, the roof form lets in south light through simple factory-like 
triangular clerestory windows. And so th those are really simple sustainability things that could look like a uh, nuts and berries type, you know, um, eco building from the 70s, but it's done in a very different way in this example. A lot of it is just basic building science as well. Yes. What's your favourite bit inside the building or outside the building? What's what's your favourite part of the Springvale Hub? Uh, oh, look, my favourite part is absolutely the, the basketball court, and I'm not a basketballer. I just, you know, when you stand there, you're near Springvale Road, you get the flag facade behind you, and I should also note the flag facade, as you noted, or well, you didn't note earlier, but we should have noted, it actually flutters. It's actually a curved facade, so it looks like the flags are actually waving as well. Yes. Um, it's really beautiful, but if you're there and there's also table tennis tables near there and and foosball and uh, there's a beautiful little fountain that kids jump in in summer and it's just a good people-watching area. I like, I like people-watching, you know, you sort of, when you go travelling, go for a meal, you want to sit outside as a voyeur because you can kind of see what's going on. That's the best moment to kind of see what's going on. Everyone sort of moves through that space and that area and it's 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 really interesting and, and a nice place to be. That's externally. I think internally it would be, it'd be. Um, I mean, I really like the youth lounge. The youth lounge is on a upstairs. If you go to the Springvale Library, it's upstairs. It's got its own view looking over the whole park. It's the best view of the whole area. It's a really richly coloured burgundy space. Um, and it's just a really nice room. If you could design a, a room like that in your house, you would. You, you mentioned people watching. What I enjoyed the most was being able to walk around the sort of dress circle, the, the balconies, and, and look down and look around and get a full sense of that double height, triple height space, and also the wonderful spiral staircase. Yes. So so internally there are um, three halls. Uh, we call them halls anyway. So right near this building is an existing 1960s town hall, classic town hall, double height space where dances and things go on, it still gets used. And we think communities love halls, you know, this purpose of a space where you're in where it's double height and it feels generous. And so we built in, as you experienced, three of these kind of elliptical halls within the building. And one of them's in the library and we call it the technology hall. One of them's right in the centre where you enter in, it's called the community hall. And another one is near the historical society and where they hold events and that's called the exhibition hall. And so it's a bit of a hark back to you know, what it's like Masonic halls and town halls and, you know, uh, roller ring derbies, you know, these, these places that have sort of, you know, large spatial capacity in them that you remember as a community. And so building those in was really important. It's a, it's a really nice civic idea to have these generous open spaces. And as you say, from up above, you look over the balcony and you're a voyeur and you can, you can always see what's going on. It's not closed off. You can feel like you can see right through the library. It gives you that sense of awe. It's like when you walk into the State Library and you come in under the, the great big dome cupola and you're like, oh, wow. You know. Yeah, it's not quite, it's not quite that epic, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, but, that's, but that's what it's about, right? It's the suburban scale oh, moment. Exactly right. And, and finding those, those joys and pleasures and as a bit of an antidote to uh, what might be the day-to-day. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, I'll tell you a big plus for this building for me was that I, I took my kids there not once but, but twice even because uh, they wanted to go back there. And they still talk about it and they never talk about the buildings that I designed or, or lines designed because, you know, they don't always appeal. 
or they don't trigger anything for them. But this project absolutely does. They love it. You know, they, they love the external space. They love going inside and fiddling around the kids' library. They love those double hard spaces, you know, the big logs around the balconies, all that sort of stuff. So it's, it obviously has a playful element that appeals, I think, uh, to my kids anyway. Um, but I think there's something in that if you can get your teenagers down to eight-year-old kids kind of liking it, liking architecture, that's a, that's a big thing. That's a huge win. I'm also really interested in procurement and getting not only intention right but procurement right as the, the pathway to great architecture. So tell me a bit more about the process. It started off with a competition. Yeah, so the competition uh, was held, so um, that's not too unusual. I've got to say there's probably less, seems to be less competition these days than back then. But anyway, they did a design competition nationwide. I think at the end there was um, two or three Melbourne firms and a Sydney firm in the final final round. Um, and that for them gave them a look at what the architecture would be. And I think that's where it really helps clients um, with competitions is they get a bit of a look into what the architect is about and because um, it's very hard if you're just hiring an architect and you can look at their past work, but you don't know what they're going to produce for you. So it gives them an insight into where you're going to go. And if I showed you that design competition scheme, you'd see how very similar it is to the outcome, which is quite unusual in some ways. A lot of times you win a design comp, then you meet the client, and then you flip a whole lot of stuff um, to do with the idea. But this one stayed um, <clears throat> pretty true to it, really. It's um, it sort of had a classic number of really strong components about trees and about urban design that were so locked in. I think that, you know no one wanted to change uh, where they were going. Um, so I think that I think that was great, and I think that's as long as they're open to a wide range of architects, you know, long where they live, because that's how that's how you know architects and up and coming architects can get into bigger civic architectures through competitions like that. So it was an open competition and had like a second stage that involved a design scheme or? <coughs> it had it had a first stage, yeah, expression of interest. And now you're catching me out because I'm probably sure that first expression of interest probably said you have to have done, you know, umpteen projects of this scale uh, before you can get accepted in, into the design competition. So, yeah, so I don't think it was completely open to any scale of architect. Um, so they would, have, they would have had 20 or 30 entrants into that. And then they, you know, narrowed it down to, I think it was four or five uh, to go through a full design competition, which takes a lot of work. They're six to eight weeks. They're very intense, and you have to design a whole project within that eight week time frame. And then we had to cost it, and then present it back to the client that it was on budget with all our ideas in it. Wow, that's only something a firm of the scale of Lions could definitely handle. Yes, there's still a lot of work, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. That's that's absolutely right. And then did it just shift to a more traditional model of going through the schematic design, design development contract doc? It, it was it was actually very old school in a lot of ways. So um, and when I say that, again, for listeners, you know, a lot of projects now are done in collaboration with a builder halfway through design, um, and that's pretty normal these days, sort of lessens risk for the clients in some ways and they get the builder involved uh, for better or worse and there's lots of diverse opinions about that uh, but this one was a traditional one we we completed we completed all the design detail documented it fully and put it out to market and then represented the client as the builder 
um, builder. So it was very traditional in, in that way. Um, and the builder, Arlen Brown, were great. They were actually, um, I think this is the most complex building by far they'd ever undertaken. Um, and, that, and they really took it on board. They, they really heaved in. You know, I think they'd done sort of $10, $15 million projects with councils before. This is more like a $40 million project. And it took a lot of work. And, and they had a lot of contractors with them. And this is what I love about building. You get to meet people who are building facets of it. And so the person who, or the group who built the uh, glass veil, the glass facade across the front, which is really complicated. It's, um, it's not held by steel. It's all held by mass timber um, as the mullions. It's all specialist glass. And it was made by a factory outfit in Gippsland. So we went out and saw them and talked about the project. It was by far the complica- most complicated thing they'd done as well. So there's a whole lot of people learning learning new things on this project. And, um, you know, I think when you get a whole group of people who are driving towards a good outcome, it's positive. Um, it's not always that way, as, as we all know, in, in the architecture and building, but it was really positive, this one. Sounds like the trades would have been super excited to get into some of those challenges. Yeah, excited. Yeah, I think I think daunted and frustrated at certain points. Like a classic one is so there's actually a a lot of the structure holding up the building is actually pipework. I don't know if you picked that up, but it's actually you know big, again five hundred millimeter diameter pipework, and it's actually curved in two directions. So it's very complicated, and this is because it goes around the curved facade in plan, but it also goes up and down like a swoop. So it's going in two directions, massively complicated. Again, the people trying to warp that steel and get it to the exact dimensions, that was a that was a very excruciating process for them. But they got it right in the end and, and it looks great. But I, but I don't think they knew what they were in for when they started. <laughs> yes, the curving steel in two directions is always a huge test of patience. <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly. And yet we love so, to do it, architects, don't we? We say, we know it's possible, let's curve it two ways. You know, that's right. It, it works in our three-dimensional model, so why can't you do it? <laughs> um, so that was enjoyable. The other part of the procurement that was really enjoyable was the um, the public art. So there was a few facets of the public art. So uh, one of them was through a group called the Enterprise Hostel Group. It's a wonderful lady called Merle Mitchell who led this local historical group, and they recorded all the immigrant journeys into a whole catalogue that's online. You can still access it. Um, it's a whole storybook of all the migrant journeys for Springvale. And we use that as inspiration in, in quite a few places um, throughout the projects. For instance, there's actually uh, a rose called the Enterprise Rose. It's actually a special breed of rose that only grows in Springvale. So we've made a specialist rose garden, which is a very civic thing to do, a rose garden in one part of the um, landscape, which has the Enterprise Rose in it. And it's actually all in the shape of a rose and, and harking back to that memory. But then we also got a, a, um, a public artist, uh, Paul Carter, from Material Thinking, and he came along and did storytelling that could be conceptualised in the public art with us and with the community. And that came in through a few pieces of public art. For instance, there's a sculptural enterprise rose that's in one of the main halls you might have might have seen um, that they built and procured with a camera um, artist. Uh, and there's also a couple of embedded ones within the landscape too about storylines and about coasts of the world coming together and, and about immigrant journey. So that procurement is different to the architectural procurement, but it was really enjoyable to go through that process. And that's one, again, the council 
added to the project. They they saw these ideas and we said, well, we can afford one of them. I said, no, no, we want to do all of them. Let's do all three of them. Um, so that was brilliant. Yeah, they saw they saw the value and the excellent ideas and they went for it. That's that's really awesome. That that gives me hope as well. That um, these clients that procure public work and public buildings their the hearts in the right place they really as, as much as they possibly can want to come and meet us at the party yeah and if they value it as well i, I think also too and i know you've got carrie on the show in a few weeks who'll we'll probably talk about the daniel yeah, in, in november november and and that project was done before this one i've got no doubt that um educated a lot of the council on fantastic architecture and integrated art and public space making uh, and Rush Wright worked on that with us, the landscape architect. So I've got no doubt there was they they got educated a lot through that project, and they they knew a bit of architecture talk, but they also knew what they wanted by that stage, and they were they were up to it. And they they knew what was possible as well, and had, yeah, had the imagination, yeah, to receive. There's one more uh, quirky bit I want to ask you about the QR codes and the carpet. Now, did you try one? I did. My phone didn't quite scan it, but the librarians told me that it goes to the uh, council website. Is that correct? Correct. So, again, this is um, – I can't claim credit for that. One. I think that was one of our designers on the team, Sam or someone else. But we had this idea of carpet, you know, going right through the project, and it was just in greys, and we thought, oh, you know, what can we do to enliven that? Um, QR codes are everywhere now. You know, COVID made them just like the number one piece of technology – can't say they were that well used, I don't think, back in 2018-19 when we were doing this. What a spooky I premonition. I, I walked yeah, in and I, I felt, and I felt, what a premonition. They've yeah, plastered really this weird. building in QR codes and long yeah. and behold, the year it's completed. I know, and we did it on the carpet intentionally because we knew carpet gets replaced every, you know, five to ten years. So it's kind of like, well, if QR codes aren't a thing in the future, a bit like beta videotapes. Then so be it. But now QR codes are just they're, they're still strong, you know. So um, they might have to replace the carpet in five years with new QR codes. Well, the floppy disk save icon lives on, and there's generations yes, that right. don't know what a floppy disk is anymore. So that's right. perhaps the, the the QR code could become one of those symbols into the future as well. Right. I'm old enough to remember using floppy disks for my high school assignment. So me too. Just. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Just, just. Um, but, but but again, that's that's again that's a good example about having a bit of fun. You know, again, I don't think that didn't cost any more to the project. It just adds something that adds a bit of interest that someone like you picks up. A lot of people don't and just think it's you know nicely designed carpet and they'll just walk over it and it's totally fine. You know, I think that's you know um, multiplicity and you know more in design is a lot what Lions Factors have been about for a long time, and I think it. It just adds to the enjoyment of the building. Absolutely. Well, in the in the spirit of plurality and progress, the topic that's very hot at the moment, everyone's talking about it, is of course the referendum in October on the question of the voice to parliament. And I'm really, really super proud of Lions and really proud to be part of a firm that went straight away onto the record and took a bold public position that... We as a company are supporting the yes vote and individuals are jumping in and the architects for yes. So I was wondering if you wanted to add anything to the conversation. Yeah, no, I think we're up. we were totally behind the voice and, and behind what it means for Indigenous Australians. Um, 
not only in terms of recognition, but the actual voice. And I think a lot of projects where we've had Indigenous communities work with us, and we've had quite a few over the years now, their voice is embedded into the architecture. So we've believed in it for a long time. And I, I just, um, you know, I still find it embarrassing to tell my kids that we're at this stage in our evolution as a country where we still have to ask this question, you know, and I think that's where it really hits home. And I'm sure anyone who has kids, when you talk about the future and sustainability and you talk about these sort of ideas, that they sort of look at you and go, why isn't it like that already? And um, and so that just says to me that, you know, the time is not just right, it's, it's well overdue and we couldn't be more proud to support the voice. And we still, you know, respect anyone's opinions and everyone's going to a very personal decision for a lot of people. But... It's very much for us, you know, a bit, bit like um, the recent referendum on gay marriage and there's been other referendums in the past that have failed on a lot of fronts, but we hope that there's just an overwhelming uh, right that happens in this country and, uh, you know, let's let's make sure we all inform each other and form friends and family and, and give everyone the right information because I think the biggest problem with The Voice at the moment is the misinformation that is out there. It's, it's really frustrating and really disheartening to see from political leaders and 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 things that are spread around the traps. And if you look at it closely, it's a couple of very simple questions. Even the voice itself is not dissimilar to very benign committees that are around Parliament at the moment around lots of other different issues. So I just think we've overblown it to something that is... Um, when I say overblown it, I should say it's important. And the Indigenous community overwhelmingly, the majority wants it. So when I say... Uh, it's overblown. What I mean is, is the antagonistic. A, exactly, it's such misinformation. A, yeah, it's actually such a small step in the number of steps, and I'm sure will happen in the future with Indigenous Australians that, um, you know, I really hope that we all get on board. But you know what? Uh, there's a lot of voice campaigners at my local station here in Ascotvale, and uh, and they're great, and they're giving out lots of information. But I've always felt I live in a leftist bubble within a leftist city within a leftist state. And so it's hard to know how the, some of the other parts of the country are feeling because I think, you know, I think Victoria is overwhelmingly uh, going to vote yes. So it's about getting out the voice to anyone you know in other states and and, and getting out information there because I think that's really, that's what a referendum is. Unfortunately, you've got to get the majority of states on board. So it's not just about us, it's about getting the word out there generally. Absolutely. The last statistic I heard was something along the lines of 90% of Australians support the yes vote. And exactly as you say, it's a very small but incredibly necessary step in the right, right direction that fills yeah, me with yeah. a lot of hope, you know, fills me with a lot of possibility for this country, for what, what could what's, will come next when and they're manifesting it, we're all going to vote yes. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, I can't remember, it might have been Marsha Langton or, or one, I can't remember, it was her quote, but I won't, I won't attribute it to her, but she, she sort of said, you know, everyone wants a recognition of country and everyone wants, you know, welcoming ceremonies to buildings and lots of things around not just architecture but lots of ceremonies at the moment and you know the comment was you know if you want that voice you want that to be part of your culture to be you know um be right with indigenous culture and indigenous um uh, needs but you won't vote for the voice you know good luck getting a welcome to country at your next opening so I think it's it's a really important thing that I think we have taken for granted how much we acknowledge Indigenous communities now. So this is just the next evolution. Just absolutely put the voice in there and 
and uh, give a give a real um, a real mechanism that they can actually get that heard within the people who make decisions. Absolutely. Well, I'm mindful of the time, so I want to ask my final question, which is, what gives you hope? Well, gives me hope. Um, I think it's it's an easy one. Is uh, it, it's it's kids and it's the next people. You know, not, and when I say kids, it's even recent graduates in our office. It's young people doing cool things that are, are much more progressive than even I was when you know I was that age. And so seeing smarter and more progressive and just absolutely energised young people coming through both my household and our office doing things. I mean, that's that's what gives me hope. So I just, I go, you know, we'll, we'll all go one day and it's just about the next people coming through, hopefully, you know, building on the culture that we've, we've left here. So that's what gives me hope. That's beautiful. That's a really nice note to end on. Thank you so much, James. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonarong Country. You can replay this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Hey, I'm Jane Oakley, a Matilda alumni footballer, number 36, and you're listening to Radio Karen. Stay tuned.